You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hawaii County is battling one of the largest brush fires on record for the island, triggering evacuation orders for communities in South Kohala and North Kona. Marty Moran is the Director of Disaster Programs for the Hawaii County Red Cross, which staffs the emergency shelters. He finally got a few hours of sleep last night after the mandatory evacuation orders were lifted. He spoke with The Conversation's Savannah harriman Pote this morning with the latest update. The current operations uh, for the Red Cross is we are operating the Waimea shelter at the District Park, and we are operating a shelter at Old Airport in Kona. I'm actually sitting right now at the Old Airport site. Uh, We had no clients in the Old Airport site last night, and we had no clients in the Waimea shelter. So, in effect, everybody went home. About 7 o'clock last night, there was probably 100 people or more in the parking lot and another 50 people inside this shelter. And within 15 minutes of the notification that evacuation was lifted, this site was empty. What exactly is the Red Cross's role in the operation of these shelters? Primarily, the Red Cross uh, is, is role is feeding and sheltering of uh, disaster victims uh, uh, during and after the events. Uh, we are the bridge between the event and federal aid and and then starting to do recovery. So uh, on this island, uh, we run the shelters. Um, They're usually uh, pretty much bare bones. We we tell people to bring with them their food, blankets, and that kind of thing. Uh, They're just a a respite place where they've got a safe haven and a roof over their head until whatever the disaster is develops, and then we move into a more permanent sheltering operation. Generally, in an evacuation shelter, we will have four volunteers. We also have a very strong uh, partnership with Parks and Recreation, and a lot of our evacuation shelters are in their sites, and so they will usually have one or two Parks and Rec staff on site also. Mm. And this fire, which is the largest on record for Hawaii County, comes at a time where transmission of COVID-19 is also raging throughout the county. It currently has the highest positivity rate in the state of 7.4 percent. 99 new cases were reported yesterday in Hawaii County alone. What precautions or concerns are there for the threat of transmission in these shelters? It's minimal in that uh, we try to maintain social distancing. We don't have a lot of people in the shelters. Last night was probably the the best example where we had a lot of people, but we set tables out to keep them socially distanced. We have a mask mandate. Everybody, including our staff, has to wear a mask no matter what their vaccination status is. You're probably about the same risk as going shopping at your local grocery store. And also because of the population here, a lot of people just stayed in their cars. They would come in for food and snacks, use a restroom, but they would actually stay in the parking lot in their vehicles. Last year was a different situation. And when we ran shelters last year, we had a maximum number of 50. Last year, the Red Cross actually put people in hotels. And so we did not run congregate shelters last year in response to COVID. But now with vaccinations and the like, we're starting to come closer to what our new normal would be, whatever that is. But again, we still maintain distancing, masks, uh, wiping down periodically. But at this time, we don't actually do any kind of screening. Last year, we did screening. We took their temperatures and things like that. Just to confirm, you're not currently screening people who you're admitting into the shelters? 
we're not doing health screening uh, at this point in time. We're not asking them health questions, especially in evacuation shelters. And as we already said, this fire is unprecedented for Hawaii County. 40,000 acres and counting have burned. In 2018 and 2019 alone, the number of acreage burned was closer to 30,000 for the state. Does the Red Cross and your partners have the staff and the resources necessary to respond to this kind of disaster? Absolutely. We have about 185 volunteers on the island. Uh, This was very unusual. I've been on the island since 2006, and this is the first major evacuations that we've ever had. Climate's changing. There's more fires. We have about 50 trained shelter volunteers, and we were able to staff all our shelters. The way the Red Cross operates um, is all disasters start out locally. We have the capacity to to ramp up to run the operation for a day or two up to three and then things start to get a little tight our volunteers go back to work at that point any kind of major operation uh, we do have the ability to bring in other people from the state and ultimately on a major operation such as the lava uh, within about three days we start bringing in uh, volunteers from uh, the mainland what will happen next for us is we will identify those folks who have actually lost their homes. We'll do what we call a damage assessment. Based upon that assessment, then we will reach out to them, and we do provide certain financial uh, transition aid, and then uh, we work with them to start on making long-term planning. We will then work with other agencies, hook them up, Catholic Charities, uh, Salvation Army, if there's actually a federal declaration, and we have caseworkers that work with them to start them on the road to recovery. A good example is the lava. We reached out, and they had immediate cash assistance that was given to them. But after the the event was over, uh, we worked for another two years distributing Red Cross funds that had been donated and uh, also uh, worked with other charities for what they call the Unmet Needs Table, which is a recovery process where we take people who, for some reason, they'll have a need that's not met by one of the other agencies who look at them. And uh, actually, in this county, Red Cross donated about $300,000 to victims of the lava for repair of their catchment systems, which were affected by the sulfuric acid, which was a fallout that was not readily known at the beginning. And so there was actual um, cash grants given to people to clean out, repair, and replace their catchment systems in Leilani Estates. Mm. Marty, thank you so much for taking a breath with us on what I'm sure has been one of your busier weekends. What more do people need to know at this time in order to stay safe? You should have some sort of kit set aside so that you're ready to go if you have to leave. Your important papers should be in one location. We are very lucky here in that a lot of our disasters are those there's sort of a ramp up to uh, fire is not one of those so have a go kit have your important papers set aside know where you're going to go set up a phone tree with your family so you can have get information out to them when you're safe and uh, then follow all the instructions that come over the radio and through the news media from the local government and be ready to react We'll be there for you. We'll be waiting. But you've got the first steps.
fire has the ability to create its own weather, and it is totally unpredictable. And as much as man tries to do what we can to stop it and control it, reality of it is is that uh, it it is an animal of its own. So it's nothing to play around with. And I think that's what the people up there saw was this is on the hill, and it's not coming this way. But that doesn't mean it won't. And uh, we always have to remember that. That was the conversation Savannah Harriman Pope speaking with uh, Marty Moran of the Hawaii County Red Cross. The mayor's office confirmed this morning that 40,000 acres have burned so far and that the fire is stable but not contained. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, with ways for the community to help conserve water during the hot summer months when rainfall is low but demand is high. Seven ways to conserve water at boardofwatersupply.com. 800 million, 920 million, 2.6 billion dollars. Those are the per mile price tags of infrastructure projects in some American cities, making the U.S. one of the most expensive places in the world to build new roads, tunnels, and bridges. And why? What impact could that have on the infrastructure compromise working its way through Congress? We'll take a look on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at two, following the world. HPR brings you vital information from the islands and around the world. It brings you music that enriches and uplifts. And it keeps you company, providing moments of levity and joy along with the news. Whatever your day looks like, stay connected at home with your smart speaker. It's easy. Just say Play KHPR for HPR 1 or Play KIPO for HPR 2. today if Governor David Ige will agree to delay the start of school in response to a request by Maui Mayor Mike Victorino. There's growing concern over the rise of COVID-19 cases due to the Delta variant, and the governor's office has scheduled a news conference that will be live-streamed at 1 today. The triple-digit case count is distressing to many parents. That's a story Honolulu Civil Beat has online. Education reporter Suban Lee on the line today. Good morning. Hi, Catherine. Good morning. Yeah, so I was hearing from parents very worried about, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow when everybody heads back to class. Yeah, absolutely. Tomorrow is the official start of the DOE calendar year. Um, There will be some staggered days, so not every school might necessarily start tomorrow. But this week, expect the return of uh, in-person learning for students in the public school system. And and you mentioned the governor is holding a press conference at 1 p.m. today. That is right with the DOH and the new interim DOE superintendent, Keith Hayashi. Now, we don't know exactly what he's going to say, but my belief is that they will reassure parents that it is safe to return kids to the in-person learning environment this year. And I don't expect anything too surprising along those lines. 
but of course, we will wait and see what happens. Yeah, I mean, I I was kind of uh, uh, taken aback by Victorino's request, uh, but yeah, I think I'm with you. I think they're going to maybe stay the course and say, you know, we've got to get the kids back in the classroom. Sure, sure. And you're referring to Mayor uh, Maui Mayor Mike Victorino's Sunday evening um, statement um, urging the governor to scale back or delay the reopening. Now, in his statement, Victorino said that, you know, with the with the rising surging case counts due to the new Delta variant and limited hospital capacity in the neighbor islands, that he's not sure that it's such a great idea to start schools now. But I, I don't know if that's going to have any impact on the state, statewide system's uh, plan to move forward tomorrow. And in your story, you talked about the percentage of, uh, I think, uh, students that are vaccinated. Right, the student body. Right, right. So according to the Department of Health, um, there's about 97,000 children aged 12 to 17, which is that eligible age range for vaccinations. 46% of 12 to 17-year-olds are fully vaccinated, and 58% have received at least one dose. So those are the current numbers. And, you know, we do have a couple of the multi-track schools in, and I know I did chat with the Holomua school principal, and he confirmed that there were two positive cases of COVID uh, in his school community. Mm-hmm. So everybody's just, you know, a little concerned and, and they're not sure what will happen um, as kids get back in the classroom. Yeah, I, I don't think health officials are saying there won't be any COVID cases with uh, students and staff returning to school campuses. Um, you know, some of these schools have populations of, you know, three, four, five hundred children, if not a thousand or two thousand. So I don't think anyone's saying don't expect to see any COVID cases with the mitigation measures in place. But school officials, at least, are emphasizing that these layered protections and the uh, vaccination urging of adults and eligible students will play a big factor in in minimizing the potential number of cases. So as you know, as we have had a, uh, a last, the past few days have been very grim in terms of our case count numbers and the positive positivity rate being as high as it is, um, the fact that schools are returning absolutely is very concerning to many people. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Josh Green just appeared on uh, the Spotlight Hawaii program just about a half an hour ago, and he said, you know, he, he understands the concerns. However, he's urging also parent vaccinations, um, eligible student vaccinations, and and but you know there is concern that it's 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 a risk. But I think we'll have to see wait and see what happens. Yeah, stick to the protocols, hand washing, mask wearing, distancing, and and hope for the right. best. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, you stay safe, Suvan Lee. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You too. All right. I'll try my best. <laughs> okay. That was reporter Suvan Lee with today's reality check. Read her story at civilbeat.org. BYU Le'ie is one of two private schools in the islands that is requiring its students to get the COVID-19 vaccine before stepping on campus. They must submit records by August 18th, two weeks before school starts in September. We reached out to President John Coway to understand this decision. None of BYU's other campuses are requiring the shots. So we have spent the last 18 months with, you know, first completely online education, followed by mostly online education with a handful of students back here in Laie. 
And and starting in December of 2020, we began weekly testing of all students and employees. And we were able to manage the spread of COVID extremely well here on campus and in our community, in a large part because of that testing. However, uh, we've found it very clearly that our students continue to suffer, right, in their kind of intellectual progression and in, in various aspects of their mental and emotional and even physical health uh, because they don't have the true campus experience available to them. So as we moved through the summer, we looked into what we could possibly do to ensure a safe and uninterrupted operation of campus to serve our students' needs, but also balance that with ensuring that we remain uh, the good citizens of this community that we're committed to being. And so this requirement uh, for the vaccine, the students then have until August 18th to uh, produce those records? Yes. And then what about staff? Uh, Right now, our staff are nearly 80% fully vaccinated at present voluntarily. And our faculty who are going to be interacting with students are well over 90% vaccinated uh, voluntarily. Okay, so not a requirement for uh, faculty and staff. Right, it's not required. And I'm, I'm actually really proud of our employees for taking the urging of our state leadership and our state public health leadership and realizing that they need to do their part to protect the community and, and that we haven't you know, needed to really even discuss a requirement because the staff have been so assertive about being part of the solution. You know, we did talk to another private school, you know, Iolani School, about their uh, mandate for vaccines for the uh, upper grades uh, at 12 and up, just because they have been able to manage the COVID cases, you know, early on, I think they had one and then just were very conservative about the personal protective equipment with masks and shields. And they just feel that, that this is the next step for them, particularly with the variants that are that are circulating in our community. Absolutely. And, and I, I think that as we look at what we've been doing, um, there's certainly differences between higher education, especially our university that has a significant on-campus housing component and the the requirements that are associated with having resources available for isolation and quarantine and the the limited housing that that creates. There are a lot of ways to deal with COVID and to manage your student population and your staff population and your interactions with the community, Uh, but the vaccine is extremely effective. It's, It's very safe. And as we, just like those at Iolani did, I mean, as we explored and carefully considered all the available data about the vaccination, about the various COVID-19 vaccines, their safety, their efficacy, so we consulted with experts in medicine, public health, epidemiology, and, and certainly myself being a molecular biologist and population geneticist. Uh, has helped because I'm getting down into the primary literature. You know, all of those considerations made it clear to us that this, the vaccine and vaccination effort is a safe and effective way to mitigate the risk of COVID-19 for ourselves and our community and ensure, or I guess ensure is a strong word, but at least facilitate the safest and most uninterrupted educational experience that we can provide for our students. And Elani School, you know, I think is making exemptions for, uh, I guess, medical reasons and religious reasons. Um, what's the snapshot over at BYU? 
Absolutely. We, we have the same language in our policy uh, to provide exemptions for valid medical contraindications and for religious belief. Um, there's a process in place for that. We have granted an exception for valid medical contraindications um, and are obviously open to you know, valid religious exemption requests as well. Uh, do you have a number of those requests pending? We have a handful of requests. Uh, it's not a huge number, and we certainly have rejected requests that were not for valid medical contraindications. And so in those cases, then the student has to either just be vaccinated or just opt not to go to BYU LA? That's right. They've been given options. We have deferral options that are set up so that the students have the option of attending another educational institution within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints educational system. Um, they can attend another university online and transfer credits back to continue their progress or give them that semester to prepare for whatever their next stage will be. Our medical staff evaluates each exemption carefully and, and independently, so they've rejected and accepted them based on CDC, AMA, and other accepted medical guidelines. BYU-Hawaii is the only one of the BYU campuses that is requiring vaccine for all students. The other institutions are strongly encouraging it broadly. And in specific cases, you know, for specific activities or courses or clubs, et cetera, they are requiring it in those specific cases, but not broadly. Do you know why? I mean, is it just the risk level or? Um, each institution operates in a, in a different state with a different student population and a different community and, and different responsibilities to, the, to that community. And so each institution has been carefully evaluating the policies that are the best fit for, for them and their students and their community. Have you had um, anybody yeah. just drop out just to say, well, then I'm not coming to Hawaii? Yeah, at present, we've had, we've had a handful of students who have discontinued from the university. Uh, we have a number of students who have deferred this semester. Um, that Those deferrals may, you know, we don't know what the exact reason for each of them. Some of them are deferring because the countries that they are currently living in, they can't actually travel to Hawaii this semester. There's others who maybe are just happy with the way things are at present or have moved on to other adventures, given that we haven't had a fully operational campus for almost 18 months. And certainly there are students who have deferred this semester because they are not willing to comply with the immunization requirements. And what can you share with us about uh, testing? Uh, because I know there are a number of places that uh, are saying and we, we should be continuing to test uh, because you can be asymptomatic. Absolutely. So we, we'll continue to have testing resources here on campus, conduct random testing to monitor what's happening, and, and certainly have free testing for anyone who's concerned uh, based on symptoms. So we'll continue to move forward with a variety of testing strategies to monitor the population. And how large is the enrollment there at PYU? 3,000 students from over 70 countries. More than half of our student population is from outside the mainland United States. And we bring those students here to this small community that is tight-knit, that, that has very limited medical facilities nearby, and we take our role in this community very, very seriously. And for us, you know, every aspect of managing COVID and serving our students 
is influenced by the responsibility we have to be good citizens of of this little community that depends on each other for everything. That was John Coway, president of Brigham Young University at LAIA, talking about the mandatory vaccine policy for students returning to the classroom in the first week of September. At this hour, the Hawaii Healthcare Association is holding a news conference to talk about mandatory vaccines. Thousands of federal employees in Hawaii with the Veterans Administration are also facing a mandatory vaccine policy following a decision by President Joe Biden. We reached out to Bonnie Pang, president of the Hawaii Employers Council, to hear the conversations around mandatory or voluntary vaccinations. It's a really complicated topic, and I think that really what we're guiding our members on is to proceed with caution. There's a lot of consideration that needs to be given to the policy that they would introduce and how that would be rolled out in order to comply with, for example, ADA as well as Title VII, reasonable accommodation and such. You know, I think everybody is to some degree moving forward with a sense of urgency, but in a very thoughtful manner with a vaccine mandate. There is a lot of conversation But essentially, what we've heard is nobody wants to be the first one in Hawaii to mandate a vaccine policy because Hawaii is different. We do tend to have a much more paternalistic approach when working with our employees. And so there has been discussion on whether or not companies want to move forward. The guidance that we've been giving them is be thoughtful and be intentional. If you decide to introduce a vaccine mandate, consider how this might affect all of your employees because what if you have that one employee that says, I can't show proof of my vaccination? Are you willing to take that step to terminate that individual? And that can be a difficult decision in a market that has a high unemployment rate, as we know. Recruiting and retaining employees is top of mind. So that's one consideration. We also want to think about those individuals that might be part of that marginalized group. Pacific Islanders earlier were a group that was somewhat singled out because it was difficult for them to access resources. And so since then, it's good to see that organizations like the Marshallese COVID-19 Committee has been working very closely with these marginalized groups to ensure increase in access to COVID resources. But these are some of the more um, complex, sometimes subtle factors that employers will need to consider if they decide to mandate a vaccination. And we've seen lots of national conversations about mandatory vaccines and healthcare workers. You know, I know some of our listeners are concerned, you know, because they're hearing that, whoa, gosh, not everybody at the hospitals that they go to are vaccinated and they worry about that. And that is certainly a concern. You know, we, we are hearing disruptions. You know, I think this weekend there was a disruption uh, with uh, inter-island shipping and, you know, supplies aren't getting to some of the counties, uh, or at least Kauai County, j- just because of either COVID clusters, you know, or, or other issues related to supply and demand. But uh, certainly you want to keep the essential workers safe. Yes. And so I think really what businesses can do is what they've been doing thus far, which is encouraging employees to be vaccinated, educating them on the importance of vaccinations. As we know today, you know, Ray Vera, I think, reminded us that 
those individuals that are vaccinated are the ones that are going to be most protected, not only themselves, but their family members, their co-workers in the community. So we want to see that effort continue. And there has been lots of discussion about working remotely and what that means for the future. What are you hearing from your members about, you know, the need for office space and how we make this transition as we go through this recovery phase and get past COVID? I think the hybrid work environment is going to continue. Things are very fluid. And so while a lot of companies are looking at how they reopen their doors, and that would be Hawaii Employers Council as well, we have to be ready to really be flexible because things are changing continuously. Now that we see the case count increasing, there's more concern regarding the variant. Companies with the best laid plans may have to adjust at the last moment as things continue to unfold. We are also just waiting for the decision from the Food and Drug Administration to know how to proceed. Yes, yes, that would make it easiest for everyone. And I think businesses will continue to kind of take that wait and see perspective while they take a look internally at their own organizations to make sure that, again, they have the right policies and procedures in place. Messaging is consistent across the organization. So employees have a sense of the why that this is to protect them their coworkers and also the customers that they serve. And we have seen very good response, you know, for, let's say, our educators, you know, or our hotel workers, you know, the folks that are on the front lines, uh, that they are just uh, stepping up to get the vaccine so that there is, you know, ample coverage. Yes, yes, and that's great to see. I think as I speak with employers throughout the state, small, medium, and large, every company is continuing to message to their employees the importance of getting the vaccination to bring folks back to work. And so it's been pretty consistent in all industries as I've met with people. Okay. Anything else that you think uh, might be, I don't know, more of a challenge here in the islands versus, you know, somewhere across the country? You know, it's probably recruiting and retaining employees. We hear this around the state, but also on the mainland. I think where it's difficult in Hawaii is because we are isolated. And so companies will probably continue to look at other pools of employees that they can tap into, high schools, um, working with social service organizations that provide skills to individuals and bring them back to work. Uh, Where Hawaii Employers Council can be valuable to any of our member companies or, or other companies is the resources that we bring to the table in helping to retrain, reskill, and repurpose those employees to keep businesses on the cutting edge as far as best practices, which is really what COVID has brought about is redefining those best practices. And so we're going to be there lockstep with our member companies. And, you know, there are a number of job fairs that are scheduled for this week because we certainly do uh, need to either transition people from, you know, one field to another or at least get folks just back to work. Yes, that is true. And the world has changed. There's more technology that's being introduced as companies look to become more efficient, look to enhance the customer experience. And so providing individuals with the new skills that they're going to need to effectively work at their company when they come back, um, learn how to work also with customers or coworkers in this new environment will be key. Our learning and development services, as well as our organizational effectiveness consulting services, which provides members with leadership as well as change management resources are going to be critical. And what are you hearing from your members just about the pay issue? It's 
speaking in general about compensation, I think all businesses are looking at their compensation models in order to remain competitive and to attract and retain uh, the very best employees to move their business forward. But I would say what balances that conversation is also the culture of the organization, work-life balance. There's a lot of conversation and literature that also indicates that in addition to being paid well, what is equally important is, is my employer willing to allow me to work in a hybrid environment? Are they ensuring that they are providing me with a safe uh, work environment for myself um, and ultimately my family? Are they able to accommodate if I have perhaps a situation that I'm not able to become vaccinated on? So all of that, I think, is taken into consideration by employees, and that was confirmed most recently in talking with some of employees that I've met with here. That was Bonnie Pang with the Hawaii Employers Council talking about uh, concerns that its members have about making vaccines mandatory for its employees. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Move over, Mars. Christopher Phillips joins us with the news about a new mission to Jupiter's moon, Europa. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet. Also, stuff that we can try and find in our dark island skies. As usual, turning to the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips. We've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, glad to have you back with us here. What do you have this week? Hey, Dave, it's good to be back. So this week, stargazers look out for the gas giant planets of Jupiter and Saturn after sunset. Both planets will be visible in the east. The moon this week is a waning crescent, and so conditions will be perfect for stargazing. And you mentioned Jupiter. I understand there's an exciting new mission to that planet. Indeed. Private spaceflight company SpaceX has been chosen by NASA to launch the upcoming Europa Clipper mission to Jupiter. The spacecraft will blast off aboard the SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket in 2024. The Europa Clipper mission is one of the most exciting planetary science expeditions of the decade, and the goal is to study Jupiter's icy moon Europa. And how long does this one go? Well, the mission is set to last about four years. But as we all know, these missions can often run longer. New spacecraft tend to outlast their original estimated lifetimes. So long as the Clipper remains in good health, I imagine it will keep on trucking well past its expiration date. How long does it take to get there? Well, as you know, space flights to the outer planets take a while. Now, while you can fly to Mars in around six months or so, the flight time to Jupiter is about six years, with the spacecraft arriving in about April of 2030. And bring folks up to speed again on why Europa is such a very special and exciting place to be headed to. Well, Europa is enticing to planetary scientists because there is overwhelming evidence for a massive body of water beneath its mile-thick ice sheet. Not only that, we suspect that the subsurface ocean is salty like our own and warmed by geothermal vents on the ocean floor, again, very much like our own planet. I don't need to tell you how exciting that may be when talking about the prospects for life elsewhere in the solar system. And with a six-year journey to get there, that's probably not going to be a manned mission anytime soon to that planet. <laughs> no, not anytime <laughs> soon. Not unless we can develop faster, more powerful spacecraft to get humans out there cheaply. And this new mission, is it going to go beneath the ice on Europa? Not physically. The spacecraft will map the moon and explore the interior using radar and other instruments, but it won't actually land on the surface. That's for another mission 
commission that is currently on the drawing board. What the clipper will do, though, is choose a potential landing site for this future mission. Well, not sure if we'll be still around when this stuff actually happens, because it's a ways <laughs> into the future, but it's great hearing about it on the front end with you, Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the Information Technology and Communication Primary Facility at McMurdo Station, Antarctica. Committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design, ferrarochoi.com. There is a big push this week to get workers back on the job or into new professional paths. Uh, A career expo featuring more than 50 employers is taking place Wednesday at the Blaisdell Center Exhibit Hall. And there's also one planned for the Valley Isle. Maui County is looking to streamline the process for anyone looking for a new job. The conversations Russell Sabiano spoke with Linda Pupolo, the executive director of Maui's Workforce Development Board. There are still large segments of the population that are out of work and and looking for a job. So what does the job market look like on Maui? The job market on Maui, well, I'll just give you an indicator. We still have a lot of people out of work. And the LIR director, Ann Torero Espacio, she had an interview a couple of weeks ago, and she said there were, like, statewide still 146,000 claims that haven't been processed for unemployment. Oh, my that they're still working on, and they're working hard on them, and they're very complicated claims. And if Maui is an 11% population of that, it comes out to about between six and 7,000. People here still haven't been processed. So our unemployment rate is the highest in the state, and I, I don't know what the rate is. It was 12.8 a couple of months ago. They say it's 8 point something now, but I don't think it takes into consideration all the people that haven't been processed and all the people that are long-term employed or were, are collecting full benefits. Do you have a sense that there are a lot of businesses looking to hire? Are there a lot of help-wanted signs in the windows or a lot of ads on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace? Yeah, there are a lot of ads all over the place. Indeed, the recruiter, our own HireNet system, has everybody has to register on HireNet for the state of Hawaii. The Workforce Development Division at the state administers system. There are quite a lot of jobs on there. And our Maui County Virtual com website has about 245 jobs right now. And your office is holding a job fair that will be both virtual and in person. Can you share with our listeners how they can participate in both versions? Okay. We have employers on each version. So our website, Maui County Virtual com. It has a job fair. You open it up, and it's got, like, little boxes. So you can go ahead and go in each box and see who you'd like to respond to. That job fair will be open all the time, but the live portion of it is between 12 and 3. At 3 o'clock, we move over to an in-person job fair. The last time we did a job fair, we did a drive-through job fair, and it was very successful. Would have liked to see us do that again, but it's so hot right now that we decided we got permission from the mayor to, to pull it inside. So we're doing it in the University of Hawaii Paina building, which is where the very cafeteria, culinary cafeteria, we're doing it in there. And we'll, we have a maximum of 25 employers right now. What kind of response that you expect to get or, or what kind of response have you gotten so far? 
Well, as far as employers go, we still have a few spots left. I think we're between 17 and 20 right now, but we still have a few spots left for employers. As far as people signed up registering for the job fair, it is always Maui County is Maui County time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We can, you know, people register probably last minute. People will show up and not be registered. So we're prepared to, for three hours, between three and six, to hold at least we could probably do over 400 people if we need to. Now, there's something about this job fair that is going to be different than probably any job fair Hawaii residents have been to before. Can you share what makes this job fair different? Well, we've always run these pre-job fair events. These pre-job fair events are always really important to getting people to think about the next move. So, Right now, I mean, if you bring somebody in that's been a bartender for 20 years, you sit them down and you try to do some career counseling, a lot of times they'll say, I don't know what I want to do. I'm just, I know I want to make a change, but I don't know what it is. So University of Hawaii has this really cool, on our Maui County Virtual Job Fair site and on our Maui AmericanJobFair.com site, you can find it. And it formats on phones as well. You don't have to just be on the computer. You can do it from your phone. It has this really cool test. It's a self-assessment test. And when you take it, it gives you some codes. And the codes, they kind of take the top three things that you're, that probably are your interests. So for me, my interest codes are social, enterprising, and investigative. And there's also realistic, there's artistic, there's enterprising, and there's conventional. So there's all kinds of codes. And, and when you take the test, it kind of gives you three codes. And what that does is it gives you a whole list of the type of jobs that you might be more suited to. It's not like this is what you have to do. This is a a way to guide you through a process. So on the first week before we had the job fair, we have a Wednesday session every week, and anybody can go on MauiCountyVirtualJobFair.com and listen to the presentations. Even now we take them. So you go the first week, you do the RISEC test, and you get your code. Then we take those codes, and and then on the second Wednesday, I did a presentation called My Next Move, and that is an ONET, United States Department of Labor site, that you can go into, and you can put in what kind of job that you want. It'll give you a video of what the job looks like. It gives you all the duties, the qualifications, educational level. It gives you the outlook on how many jobs there are, and it's a really nice for people to start researching what they'd like to do. The third session was about remote work. There are a whole lot of remote jobs coming up, and we have licenses to share with people. People register at the job fair. We can give them these licenses to be able to use for a year to look for remote opportunities, and that is kind of where the job market is going into a lot of work-at-home opportunities. So we had a whole session about how to become a remote worker, and then next, we're trying to inspire people to not only find their, tr- they may need to take a tra- transitional job for a while, but we're trying to inspire them to think about what they want to do long term. And there's also lots and lots of education and training programs at University of Hawaii right now that, that are available to people and there's funding available to help them. So dislocated workers have a lot of hope in the community right now. And then the last thing we did is we took those Maui County Virtual Job Fair on our site, and we took all the jobs on our site, and we put codes that were more like those jobs. Mm -hmm. We coded them so people, when they go on there, they can see, oh, this is something that's really something that I got my RISEC code. My RISEC code 
said that this might be good for me. And then they can go in and they can search and find out if that's the job they re- would really like. It sounds like the codes kind of help streamline the process for some people who want to stay in the industry that they're currently in or, or were in. It sounds like it helps them find those right away, but it also helps people looking for some new direction to find something else that they might be interested or might be skilled for. Yes, it guides them. It gives them ideas. I mean, it's not the end all. It doesn't have to be the end all. People might say, no, it's not really me or, you know, it might not work for everybody. But everybody that I know that has taken the RISEC test, which is perfectly genius as far as I'm concerned, University of Hawaii is genius. They really feel after they take it that, yeah, that's kind of how I feel about work. And they look for, you know, it's just a guiding tool. We have a lot of, we're trying to create these guiding tools for people that they can just use. And it it also helps a career counselor if somebody comes in with some ideas. It helps the career counselor guide them through training and education programs that might help them. When they go through the process to be able to get these codes, what kind of things does the process ask? Does it ask for work history or interests? How, how does it's it... More, it's interest-based. It asks like questions like, do you like to build? Okay. Do you like to work in an office? Do you like to work outside? Think questions like that. Okay. Okay. So it tries to it's get a sense. It's not complicated. Yeah. It's just, and people need to answer it like quickly and from the gut. What's your office's hope for this job fair? Is there like a number that you're trying to hit? Well, we had 207 people at our drive through in April, yeah. and the, the market is going, it's changing really quickly. So a lot more people need jobs now, and they see their unemployment running out. So I think we're going to be pretty busy. Okay. So what we, wanna, what we hope to accomplish is to open people up to possibilities of new careers, maybe open them to a transitional job to help them get through until they find that, but not to give up. We, our, our theme is not to give up hope that you have to be stuck in a job you don't like, that, that there are ways to look at this and, and training out there to help you get to the next level. Also, one of our other hopes is that, um, I don't know if you know this, but like Maui County brings in a whole bunch of nurses from the mainland because we don't have enough nurses, right? right. So the upper skilled positions in Maui County are definitely, we bring a lot of mainland people in to fill those jobs because our residents aren't trained. So one of the other things, we just completed a $1.7 million grant, keep your fingers crossed for us, that we will be able to take that money to to provide upskill training to people that, like, it would take a CNA and turn it into a patient care technician, or it would take a CNA and make them a phlebotomist. And then eventually they could go up the level until they get to nurse where the better-paying high-skilled jobs are, or or it might take a, a property manager um, that didn't have the right skills to become an actual property manager. A lot of property managers on Maui are brought in also from the mainland, and, or managers of hotels, or you know, those are the types of jobs that we want to hone. The jobs that are here already, we want to we want to take our local residents and upskill them so they can take the jobs, and we're not bringing people in from the mainland. That was Maui County's Workforce Development Board's Linda Puppolo talking with our Russell Subiano. For information on the upcoming job fairs this Wednesday, check out the link on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. And that's a wrap for this Monday. Tomorrow we check in with Hilton Rathel of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii. Are you vaccine hesitant? Share your thoughts. Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. 
missed something and want to listen back to something you heard today, well, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will all be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.